You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. We're still uh, in the midst of uh, stage four COVID restrictions. This was a three-way conversation. We may have technical difficulties during the interview. If we do, that's life. I'm in one part of Victoria. Our special guest, Mr Brad Homewood, is in another part of Victoria, and 3CR is somewhere else. So this is a Radical Australia Menage a Trois. Good afternoon. Brad, how are you? Yeah, good afternoon, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure, that's good, mate. Yeah, look, I'm. Uh, they give me a piece of paper with a uh, with a with a, a name on it. They say make an interesting interview, Joe. So hopefully you've got some interesting things to say. Well, it sounds like we're off to a flying start. Yeah, oh, of course we're off. Look, I, I'd yes. like to take take this opportunity on behalf of Extinction Rebellion to um, pass on our sincere condolences to the people of Japurong. Uh, for the, the terrible losses they've been forced to endure over the recent days and to express our complete solidarity with their ongoing struggle. Yeah, was it interesting, Brad, the way they used the COVID-19 uh, restrictions as a way of uh, breaking up the protest? Uh, I think a lot of people thought that the new legislation would only be applied to the Tin Hat Brigade. It applies to everybody, including us, obviously. Now, Brad, uh, we only asked two questions on the program. We've got about 55 minutes to answer, so it's pretty easy going. I'm not here to make any points or humiliate you, but you are allowed to humiliate me. But we start off with a very simple question. Uh, what year were you born, just to orientate people? Yeah, look, I was born in 1973 in uh, Williamstown Hospital in the western suburbs of Melbourne. When the western suburbs... Well, when Williamstown was very much uh, true western suburbs, uh, before it got gentrified, um, a mate of mine jokes and says that we're, uh, we're the last of the Mohicans around here because uh, it's certainly changed a lot in our lifetime. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Western suburbs have always been a radical hotbed. Uh, during the Depression, uh, when they were trying to evict families in the Western suburbs, what they do overnight is they'd actually demolish the whole house just to teach them a lesson, or they just move the house somewhere else. So there's always been this radical extra-parliamentary uh, tradition in the Western suburbs. But as you said, it has 
changed. There are people now going there who are looking for the Australian dream. Now, Brad, what's the first thing you remember about being on planet Earth? My earliest memory, uh, to be honest, I had a pretty privileged upbringing, Joe. Um, uh-huh. We would have would have annual holidays uh, down the coast in the family caravan every Christmas and Easter. And my earliest memories are probably uh, around that caravan. We had a sand pit at the front of the caravan, and, and that's one of the earliest memories I've got, to be honest. Uh-huh. Uh, were your parents born in Australia, or did they come from overseas? Uh, yeah, both my parents were born in Williamstown, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm like third generation Williamstown on one side of the family and I think fourth on the other. So, uh, uh, yeah, we're very much old school Williamstown. Right. Are your parents still alive? Yeah, mum and dad are still alive and, and both uh, both fairly well. Right. And what, what type of work were they involved in when they, when they were working or if they're still working? Uh, dad was a self employed electrician mm. and for most of my childhood um, until my early teens mum was a stay at home mum so it was a very privileged upbringing I have to acknowledge um, I can't say I ever wanted for anything I, uh, I, I definitely had plenty of love um, yeah. and a lot of guidance I suppose so I was very fortunate like that yeah, look, I don't call that a privileged upbringing, I call that the upbringing everybody should have in our community, obviously a lot of people don't have it but uh, it's not privileged. It's what you'd expect in any society, wouldn't you? You know, bit of love in the oh, family, look, bit of financial stability. Yeah, look, it, it was ideal in a lot of ways, Joe. I just say it was privileged um, because I'm very cognizant of the fact that that's not the case for everyone. Not everyone has that start to life. Um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, I had a bit of a head start on a, on a lot of people who didn't have that upbringing. So, yeah, I like to acknowledge that fact. Yeah, I understand that, but obviously a lot of traditional working people found themselves in that situation because of the struggles of their parents and grandparents because, you know, they, the whole history of Australia has been a history of struggle, not just about dispossessing the uh, First Nations people, but uh, the fact that we were a convict colony and then the fact that uh, workers were just basically disposable garbage. And if you look at the history of the Western suburbs, that's what the history was about. So it's not privilege, it's... what. It's what happens when people get together and see. I, I don't use words like privileged or disadvantaged. I use words like exploited or normal. <laughs> but getting back to your life, where'd you go? Did you go to preschool or anything like that? Oh, look, I did kindergarten. I went to the local primary school in Williamstown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to a I went to a private school, grammar school, Westbourne Grammar, for a couple of years until they politely asked me to leave. Let's go back. Let's go back to primary school. Let's go back to primary school. At primary school, did you uh, uh, was there an influx of kids from overseas in your primary school? Or was it pretty, you know, one-dimensional culturally? It was fairly vanilla, to be honest. Um, there was a little bit of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of uh, housing commission in Williamstown, so we had a, we had a lot of people from housing commission. Um, a lot of people with similar backgrounds to myself. Not a lot of multiculturalism. Um, just, just, I can only think of a handful of kids that I went through school with that were not Anglo-Saxon, to be honest. So it was, um, right. yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty white-bred upbringing. Right. And uh, when you uh, talk about, um, you know, it was all. Did, did, did you find that in primary school? I know it's a long time ago, but. 
did anything particularly catch your fancy? Did you notice anything? It just it just flies through like everybody else. Oh, uh, to to be honest, I never I never enjoyed school. Um, mm-hmm. I was in trouble. I, I was in trouble from the very early on. I remember getting the ruler and I think it was grade prep. And I remember, you know, there was four or five of us lined up to get the ruler, and there's only two of us that cried, and I was one of them. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, school didn't sit very well with me, to be honest. Um, I always seemed to be in trouble for one thing or another, and I don't know, maybe that was a preparation for later in life. Right. Well, were you in trouble? Do you think because you had learning difficulties and you had trouble concentrating, or is it just part of your uh, personality? Uh, I don't know. I think it was an attention thing. I don't think. I don't think it really caught my attention um, mm-hmm. because report after report after report said, um, you know, wasted potential. Uh, the brains are there but refuses to apply them. You know, along that sort of theme. Um, mm. And I remember. My, Mum took me off to a counsellor in primary school to try and work out what was going on. We never got to the bottom of it, to be honest, but um, it was a it was a pattern that followed right through my schooling years, and I, I honestly couldn't wait to leave school, and I ended up leaving in year ten to pursue a trade. Right. All right, let's let's get back. Let's get back. So you went. I assume your parents put you in a grammar school to put you in the straight and narrow, as uh, the state school wasn't able to do it. Is that, was that their thinking? Do you think? I think that I think that was the attempt, yeah, and it and it didn't work out as they planned. Um, well, they, what they find good money after bad to get you educated, were they? Yeah, I think you could say that, Joe. I think it's fair to say that. Um, what do you mean? What did you do? Um, well, I just just you know nothing over the top, just disciplinary issues. Um, you know, uh, had to have the last say with the teacher and. Uh, there was one teacher in particular who was a, who was a bit of an old school thug and a bully, and and we really clashed big time. And you know, it all ended when he marched me off to the principal's office and said he'd had enough, and and that was kind of the end of the of the grammar school. So <laughs> right. they, that was the day they politely asked me to leave. Did you learn anything in those three or four years you were there? Uh, probably not, because I'm in the grammar school. They, they'd have exams. Mid- Mid-term, mid-year exams and end-of-year exams and always got terrible results. Um, it was a bit of a disaster, to be honest, academically. It, I think it's a case of, the, you know, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Mm. There, was, there was nothing that really caught my interest to the best of my memory, but it was, um, you know, once I got out of school and I found things that I was interested in and, you know, I could pick up a book and learn about that particular thing, it was a different story. Yeah. So did, so did your old man pull a, full of, a few strings and get you into some type of apprenticeship, or did you find it? Uh, did you do the hard work yourself? Uh, I was lucky. I was very lucky, actually. Um, I did work experience with a local landscape gardener when I was in year ten, um, and Mum knew his wife uh, through the local tennis competition, and uh, he took me on as an apprentice. So I did a. Uh, apprenticeship in landscape gardening. Uh, we, we did with a lot of tree work, fair bit of garden maintenance. We, we worked. We did a lot of work actually in, in the leafy suburbs in the east. A lot of work around Zurak, Malvern, South Yarra. Uh, got to see how that end of town lives, and uh, and that was an interesting experience in itself. Mm, so, did you go to some of those uh, big kind of estates they have in Zurak? Uh, not as much in South Yarra. Uh, the big, the big uh, mansions with the huge gardens and the tennis courts—is that where you were 
working or is that? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, yeah, very high walls. Most houses had tennis courts and they all had a house in Portsy with a tennis court. And um, Yeah, very much some of the wealthiest people in Melbourne that we worked for. Um, we worked for Lloyd Williams. We did some work at Lloyd Williams' place. Uh, we did some work at uh, Reg Hunt. Did some work at Darren Hinch's place. Um, yeah, my boss at the time was very much tapped into that end of town and um, it was an interesting experience to see how how that demographic live, to be honest. Not you know, something I aspired to, but... No, 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 I understand that. But what... I mean, a lot of people would see that and would say, look, I would aspire to that. That's what I want for myself. I'm going to, you know, do what I can to find myself in that situation. So it didn't actually kind of, the glitter didn't kind of uh, stuff up your head or? Oh, look, I, I think you can, I think you can get, um, you can get sucked into it all briefly. You can, you know, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have this and wouldn't it be wonderful to have that? But I I think when you give it more thought, you realise um it's just not realistic. I think that's where I landed with 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 all that. To be honest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what's it like working as a uh, an apprentice landscape gardener? You do all the heavy work, or did you learn much, or what was that like? Oh, I think. Well, the first, for the first couple of years, I think I was a human bobcat. I did a lot of wheelbarrow work um, <laughs> because we did. We, because we did a lot of tree work, you know, I was, I was dragging a lot of branches, basically. If we did a tree job, that you know, the boss would be climbing the tree and dropping the branches, and I'd be dragging them out and throwing them on the truck. Um, yeah. yeah. Did so you have a mulcher? No, we didn't have a mulcher. No, we, well, that was the other part of the job. We'd throw the branches on the truck, then you'd dump up there with a chainsaw and, and dice it up between your legs so it can patch further and you could get more branches on. Uh-huh. You didn't. You didn't lose the family jewels doing that. No, I had some close calls to be honest, though, Joe. Yeah. I know. I've, I've worked out. I'm. I'm kind of getting used to a chainsaw at the minute. I'm coming down some um, fire damaged trees that need to come down, and uh, it's a dangerous game, especially for a young bloke like you who thinks he's invincible. Yeah, it's a, it's probably one of the most dangerous power tools going around. To be honest, they can kick so easily, um, um, and especially in that. In that situation where you you know you just dice in between your legs, but you know I, I got out of that relatively unscathed. Oh, that's good. And uh, did you graduate as a landscape gardener? Or did you ever argue with the boss and storm off into the wilderness? Uh, I, I finished my apprenticeship, um, and then I took up a job. A job became available on the local council before the amalgamation and the uh-huh. privatisation. So I worked for a couple of years with the Williamstown Parks and Gardens, which which was a terrific job. The, the money wasn't great, but um, we had a nine-day fortnight. And I spent like a year on the tree crew there, and then I did another year at Newport Lakes, which was a used to be an old bluestone quarry, and it was uh, we rehabilitated it. And um, it's now a beautiful space. It's two massive lakes. It's all indigenous flora, and if you if you walk down there, you wouldn't even know you're in the city. I mean, all the birds and the, a lot of the wildlife have come in. Um, that was a really rewarding job, actually. And if it wasn't for Jeff Kennett's privatisation and amalgamation of the councils, I, I probably would have stayed there longer. But um, that very that very much upset the apple cart, and um, a lot of us. What did they start there. outsourcing work and getting rid of the permanent staff? Is that what happened? Amalgamation. Yeah. Well, 
Well, Williamstown Cancel amalgamated with Altona Cancel, and then um, we had to tender for our own jobs, basically. It was madness. Um, when, when it was originally a tip, the local council had like $2 million in the bank, and the idea was that the interest off the $2 million would would um, would pay the wages of people to maintain the Newport Lakes going forward. Um, but, you know, as soon as the... Uh, as soon as the people came in to oversee the amalgamation, they couldn't keep their hands off the $2 million. So, you know, they grabbed that straight away and that plan went out the window and everyone had to tender for their jobs and they would not they would no longer have anyone full-time at the lakes. And the idea was to keep at least um, a full-time worker and a, an apprentice there as well as someone in the nursery. So, yeah, it was just, it was just a massive cost-cutting cut, exercise and... Um, you know, where can we save money, basically? Yeah, look, you know, there were dark days, dark days. I remember I was, I was involved in a number of um, protest activities during that period, but the uh, the one I remember, which was most uh, troubling for me, and uh, I'd been living in Richmond with my family for, like, about 20 years, and uh, when the councils were amalgamated, um, at that stage they wanted to build the, uh, the Burnley Tunnel, you know, under the Yarra, Give it to Transurban, and there was a number a bit of yep. protest activity. And the new, what they used to call the Supremos of the Amalgamated Council, they weren't elected; they were appointed by Kenneth. They were his little little babies. You know, we we I raised a motion with a friend of mine, a bit of a radical, about electing somebody from the public meeting uh, to be the chair, not automatically going to you know Kenneth uh, pick, and uh, the. Uh, the group of people who people I'd worked with for years, this is what's quite troubling, voted uh, to allow her to be the chair, and then, then she put a motion as soon as she got into the chair to expel me and my mate. And these friends we'd worked with for years and years and years, they voted to expel us. That's when I left Richmond. I thought, what a waste! But that that was the attitude in those days. You know, everybody thought the state was bankrupt and we had to do this and we had to do that. You know, it was terrible. Yeah, it was, it was so, so, what, what did you do after so you left? What did you do after you left? Uh, look, I left the council. Um, I worked. I actually worked for myself for a period of time. Um, right. What was that like? Uh, because I had no children at the time, I, I really enjoyed the freedom. But um, yeah, look, I never really threw myself into it a hundred percent because look, I've surfed since I was a young age. And, you know, I would I would go surfing. You know, I focused a lot on my lifestyle back then. I'd go surfing one day a week during the hang week. Hang on, the hang week. on, hang on, hang on, Brad, hang on. Here we are, <laughs> playing in that sand pit down at the coast. Rotted your brain, didn't it? You took up a surfboard. <laughs> yeah, you didn't tell us about this. <laughs> I mean, you'd been born 20 years earlier. Like I, Well, I was born 40 years earlier, I think. 30 years earlier than you. No, 20 years earlier than you, you know. You could go on the dole and you could actually live on the beach and nobody, no council officer would, you know, chase you away and you could surf all day. Is that what the type of lifestyle you were leading, was it? I've, I have heard those stories. I've got some older friends that live down the coast. I've got my ex-brother-in-law lived in a tent at Kennet River for two years. And yeah, they just yeah. basically, yeah, go to the local post office and collect his dole check and, and he lived a very good life. Um, and yeah. got a lot of waves. But, um, no, look, I, I was never on the dole, but uh, I, I only did as much work as I had to back in those days because it really wasn't a priority 
Um, and if the waves are good, I was in the car and I was down the coast. So, um, no, 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 I'm going to make a confession here. I've never surfed in my life and never have any. I've got no intention of surfing. What's what's the what's the draw card? You know, I know a lot of people who surf. What is it to you? Uh, what does it mean to you? It's look. It, it it's very much if it can be a lifestyle in itself. Um, it's that it's that interaction with nature. But it's a combination of things. I mean, if the surf's good, you've got to work pretty hard. There's a there's a, there's a fair exchange going on. You've got to you know put in a lot of work and a lot of paddling to get out there. But then you get the really big payoff when you get the wave and you get the adrenaline rush, um, and the natural high that comes with that. And surfers get what they call a stoke. Um, if you have a really good surf, you get out of the water, and yeah. and you fly. You, you know, you mentally you're flying, and and that's what surfers call being stoked. And when you get your stoke oh. on, there's nothing like it. But it's a little bit of an affliction, Joe, because even when you get out of the water after one of the best sessions you've ever had, um, you're still thinking about when can I when can I make that happen again? Like it, it's never enough. Oh. It's never enough, and that, and that's why for some people it just completely takes over their life. Yeah, it's a little bit like people who do golf every day or uh, do the punkies every day, that type of thing. Like you said, there is an addictive component to it. Yeah, and it's you know, and it's just that ultimate challenge, you know, like um, always looking for that perfect wave and and to surf it to the best of your ability, and um, and you never know when it's going to happen again because you're dealing with Mother Nature too. So you you know you're trying to mm. work out the conditions and when you can make it happen and. Yeah. Right. And did any of the sea creatures kind of uh, object to you being there, like a shark or something like that, or just never ran into that problem? Oh, look, I've been in touch wood. I've been fortunate enough never to have an interaction with a shark. Um, mm-hmm. But going into the water, I, you know, I know that's always a possibility, and we're entering their world. You know, I, um, so if it happens, it happens. Um, but you know, I've I had some close encounters with seals and. Some wonderful experiences with dolphins and things like that. Um, mm. And when that happens, that's just that's just really magical. It really is. Now, obviously, you've left instructions in your, in your will that if you're taken out by a shark, they're not going to go out and kill it. You've done that, Brad, haven't you? Oh well, I haven't made a will, but I've, my family and friends, um, I've been very clear about that. I don't, I don't want, I would not, for any reason, want anyone to kill that shark and let. Unless that shark gets out of the water, comes up on the land and kills me, that might be a different story. But um, if I go into the ocean, if I go into the ocean, I go into their domain, and that's the risk I take. And um, you know, if I if you do pay that price, then that's not the fault of the shark. So, do you think your love of nature and your love of the natural world can be linked to those holidays? You know, what you've described those those privileged holidays down the coast at Christmas and Easter and that caravan. I do actually. I, I, I think that's what, my dad's always been a, a scuba diver, um, mm-hmm. and and loves the beach. And you know we're always in the early days swim, you know, down the front beach swimming and jumping off the pier. And you know that gradually evolved into um, going down the back beach and then being allowed to go down to the back beach on your own because you know it could be pretty dangerous. Um, and I've seen that with my own son actually because from a very young age taking him down the coast too. And he's developed that same love of the ocean and that love of the natural world. And it's it's an absolute delight to watch, actually. Yeah. yeah. It does make a difference, doesn't it, what happens to you when you're small? 
makes a huge difference. But, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people on this program over the last uh, decade or so, and uh, you can actually see how a lot of people's um, lives are shaped by the type of childhood they had. So, uh, mm. so well, I, I think it's that old um, the Jesuit, Jesuit saying that you don't know, give me the child by seven and I'll give you the adult. I think I think there's a lot the of truth in that. Yeah. Yeah, man, or yeah. man or the woman or yeah, I think there's a lot of truth yeah, in that, whatever. to be honest. Yeah. 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 So what made you gave up working for yourself? Not making enough money or responsibilities or what? Uh I think I think it was a discipline thing. I think I needed I think once I um once I procreated and once I had a had a son, um I, I needed the discipline and um yeah, that look. I then worked a variety of jobs. Uh, I worked for a, a, a mob that treat concrete cancer in high-rise buildings. Um, a lot of work in swings up the side of buildings with jackhammers and angle grinders. And, uh, and I worked for a mate who's a builder for about five or six years as a builder's mm-hmm. labourer. Um, and I've been driving a concrete truck for about the last ten years. And that's right. That's let's, where get, let's get back. Let's get back to this. Um concrete cancer. I think a lot of people would be surprised, I'm not, but a lot of people would be surprised by the concept of concrete cancer. And um, could you explain to people what it is and what people need to do in order to maintain buildings from uh, collapsing? Well, it's pretty basic, really. Um, All all concrete, all, all structural concrete, and most footpaths and driveways, they have steel reinforcing within the concrete, and that holds it together and stops it from cracking open. And, you know, the bigger the building, the, the thicker the steel. Um, with concrete cancer, what happens is that steel rusts, and when it rusts, it expands, and when it expands, the concrete cracks. So in a high-rise building, there are certain points where it happens more than others. Um, you know, so someone will come through and they'll, they'll mark all these areas where the cracks are, and then you'll cut out that concrete square or whatever the shape is that they've marked with an angle grinder, then you'll jackhammer in and you'll jackhammer around the back of the steel and you'll chase the rust until there's no more rust. Mm-hmm. Then you'll sandblast sandblast the rust off the steel, you'll paint the steel and treat it, and then you'll patch the concrete again. And this is a regu- regular maintenance, is it, on buildings? Yeah, well, my limited understanding of it is that, you know, in a... We worked a lot on the um, Housing Commission flats in Richmond and Collingwood. And, um, it, it would give those buildings another 10 or 20 years. And if they didn't have, if they didn't do that, they would have to bring those buildings down because they would become unsafe. So mm-hmm. it is a regular, ongoing part of their maintenance. Right. Now, what, were you, um, during this period, this before you were driving concrete trucks, were you uh, working independently as an independent contract or were you uh, working with somebody else or a member of the CFMEU MMU, or what was going on? No, the, uh, with the treating the concrete cancer, that was with a small company and that was a... Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't a member of a union at the time, to be honest. I was a member of a union when I was on the council, but I wasn't a member of the union for the short period of time I was um, with that company, no. Uh, but, but later on? Uh, were you in a, a union or were you mainly an independent contractor working for independent contractors? I'm now driving a concrete truck um, and I'm working on a non-unionised um, workplace. 
So right. I'm not a member of a union. Um, mm-hmm. And to be honest, uh, you know, I've got enough on my plate. I don't, it's not a fight that I want to take on. On, on the workplace. Right. Look, I understand. I'm not making. I'm not making judgments. It's just interesting to see. You know, with union membership down to about twelve percent, and most of those being in the public service. Uh, you know, most sites, unless they're covered by CFM, MEU, there they're not. They're non-unionised, and obviously you highlighted that. So what's it like driving a concrete truck in Melbourne? Because it's pretty busy. I mean, I do a lot of driving myself, and uh, I, before the COVID nineteen. Business, I used to pull my hair out. Well, one of the good things about COVID has been just how relaxed the roads have been, and, and you know, right. the traffic's been <laughs> the traffic's been almost non-existent. It, it has been a pleasure. I mean, you drive into the city, it's like a ghost town. Uh, I, I haven't missed the traffic, and it's definitely ramped up in the last week or two. Um, and I, to be honest, I dreaded getting back to where it was at pre-COVID because it can add another hour to your day easily. Easily, easily. Oh, easily, easily. If you get a yeah, look, I got a yeah, I got a permit to come into Melbourne, and uh, I'm becoming two or three days every week to provide medical services to people who are housebound. And uh, I was shocked yesterday. I couldn't believe how the traffic is just growing overnight, like a you know, like an eruption more than a cancer. It was just amazing. I think we'll get. I think it's going to get worse, you know, because. Everybody's frightened of taking public transport. Yeah, and the irony there is that public transport's probably never been cleaner or safer. Yeah. Yeah, it hasn't been. And, it's, and there's been no, no pesky uh, officers to check tickets either. So that's been a positive for some of my friends who think <laughs> they think it's marvellous. I keep warning them yeah. sooner or later they get to be back on duty. Yeah, and it's only a matter of time. Now, when you, we first uh, started chatting, you mentioned uh, extinction, extinction Rebellion, and that uh, you. Um, when did you? I mean, you've got a pretty traditional upbringing and traditional job type of uh, uh, record, you know. Uh, so, when did you start um, looking at other things outside your work and family? My uh, my my political awakening probably well definitely began. As a young teenager, and I, I have to thank Midnight Oil for that. To be honest, um, Midnight Oil's "Red Sails in the Sunset" was like the first album I ever bought, and I, I still remember that first seeing the cover that you know Sydney Harbour with the, uh, you know post-apocalyptic after the nuclear bombs had gone off, and for some reason that really resonated with me, and um, that was really the start of my political awakening. And I remember Peter Garrett running for the anti-nuclear party, and. And, and that was a sort of a trend that, you know, I've always been a big fan of music, and that's a trend that followed followed me. You know, it went from Midnight Oil to the Dead Kennedys and, you know, and then Public Enemy and, you know, learn a lot right. about the US experience and um, and a, quite a bit of um, American hip-hop. And, yeah, so I, I suppose I can thank music for my political awakening, and that got me interested, and, um, and I always had an interest in politics. But I was very much a passive observer because, you know, I had other interests. Um, you know, I was quite hedonistic when I was younger, which is not unusual for a younger person. But, um, yeah, that's definitely where it started. Right. Do you remember your first protest? My first protest would 
been a climate rally. Uh, trying to pinpoint the year. Early 2000s, maybe. 2000, 20 Early years ago. 2000s. Yeah. Did that come from you being part of the uh, the anti-nuclear movement or or was it a, it came to it from a different direction? Just... Look, I, I, I can't... Look, I remember the Jabaluka campaign. I remember um, that really got my interest. Um, but beyond, you know, buying stickers and sticking a few stickers around the place, I never really did anything with that. Um, I think frustration with the, with the climate situation compelled me to... What, in 2000? In, in the 2000. early 2000s. In the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah I, I can't put an exact year on it. No, but I mean, um, you would have been um, streets ahead of everybody else. Oh, look, I, look I, first joined, I first joined the Greens more than 20 years ago, but I was a, I was a passive member. You know, I received the newsletters and followed what was going on and you know, I remember when I worked for myself, I'd come home at lunchtime and watch the the ABC News, and then I would have um, uh, they'd have the repeat from Late Line on after that, and I'd always get stuck at home watching the news and watching Late Line. And then if there was a, after that, there was always the, uh, the the guest speaker at the National Press Club, and if that was someone interesting, you know, my lunch breaks would extend out further and further. Um, you there, Joe? The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. 
Wellway supports 3CR. Well, Brad. Yes, Joe. Yeah, look, we lost you. That's that's what happens when uh, I'll be so pleased to be back in the studio next week, but uh, fortunately we're not there now. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? A lot of people have made a lot of sacrifices during the COVID-19 shutdown, but you and I really haven't made any sacrifices at all, have we? You've kept working, I've kept working. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've had a very fortunate run. Very fortunate. Been very fortunate. It's only about half the community that's been affected. I think. I think. Well, we've all been affected in terms of catching the disease, but in terms of the economic price, uh, only about half the community has actually um, suffered. It'll be interesting to see what's going to happen in the next few months. So, getting back to uh, your climate, so you're interested in when you talk about climate change, what do you mean? Uh, well, the climate and ecological emergency is is the more accurate. Um, description. Um, mm-hmm. If we want to get into the science of it, we, we know the IPCC in 2009... No, no, I don't want to get into the science. I think most of our listeners know the science. I'm just interested in why you think it's a climate emergency. I think it's a climate emergency because that's what the peer-reviewed scientific consensus is telling us, and uh, and I trust them. Mm-hmm. What, is it, what, what, does, what does the word emergency mean? I mean... I mean, I have a heart attack, I call an ambulance. That's an emergency. Why is it an emergency? It's an emergency because there's there's a fire coming over the hill. The right thing to do is ring the alarm and say, we've got a problem on our hands, Mm -hmm. we have to deal with it straight away. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reason I'd say that the the climate emergency is an emergency is because, especially because we know there's a 10-year lag in the system and we're already seeing unprecedented change. You know, the, the summer of bushfires that we've just had, unprecedented. Um, the bushfires around the world, but the permafrost in the Arctic is melting at a rate they didn't expect for another 70 years. Um, mm. and, and, and the amount of carbon stored in that permafrost is twice the amount of carbon that's already in the atmosphere. Now, if that's not an emergency, I don't know what is, and that's only one element of the climate situation. You know, we, we could get into the Arctic, the Antarctic, the Amazon, um, you know, the list goes on, but there, there, you know, there's at least nine tipping points that have most likely been triggered. And when you've got the world's leading climate scientists saying we've reached the end game and we're fast running out of time to take action and it's going to have to be drastic, radical action, um, that, to me, is the very definition of an emergency. All right. Yeah, so why do you say drastic, radical action? Isn't everybody taking action or you think we're just, you know, like you said, there's a 10-year lag, we don't care. With COVID-19, there's a two-week lag in terms of the figures uh, when you uh, apply certain restrictions but a 10-year lag. Do you think people are just, uh, just not interested or do you think it, does, they think it doesn't affect them? Oh, look, I think, I think there's a growing number of people that realise how serious the situation is. I think there's a, there's a group of people who have been sucked in by the propaganda from the fossil fuel industry because um, that's mm-hmm. a convenient a convenient lie to swallow and, you know, then they don't have to adjust their lifestyle in any way. Um, look, I, the big one for me, Joe, is we got someone like Admiral Chris Barry, the former head of the Australian Defence Force, and, and he's described it as a near to midterm existential threat to human civilization. Now, it just doesn't get any more serious than that. And, and I think if, if most of the public could get their head around that and understood that, then we might see the action that we need. But at the moment, there's just so much confusion and it's 
confusion that's been deliberately peddled um, by vested interest and and the middle management that is the political class. And they've had thirty they've had thirty years. If we want to be kind to them, they've had thirty years that they've known about this. And in those thirty years emissions have gone up and the ecological situation has only deteriorated. It's only got worse. And that's that's the system. Mm. That's the system that, that feeds off right. our- so you think that well, the COVID-19 response can be a good learning curve for people in terms of the climate emergency? Because obviously there are people who think COVID-19 is a hoax, which is a lot of bullshit, and there are people who think the fossil fuel industry is the best thing since sliced bread, which is a lot of bullshit. So do you think the fact that we are actually able to mobilise a whole continent and a whole world to try to minimise damage from COVID-19, do you think that's a good indication that if we can slice through the propaganda, that uh, people will be willing to make the sacrifices needed? I think, Look, I think pre-COVID, the, the, the common line was that we can't just stop everything. I mean, how many times, times have you heard a pol- mainstream politician say, we can't just stop everything and, and, and address the climate situation? Well, we've, we've just learned that you can just stop everything if the situation's serious enough. So we know it can be done now. That argument's finished. doesn't have any credibility. Mm. Whether the public are willing to make the sacrifices needed, uh, to be honest, I don't think a lot of them are just yet because I don't think a lot of them have really got their head around how bad things are. And that's where I think XR's first key demand is so important because our first key demand is for the government to tell the truth about the climate and ecological emergency and to use all the instruments of government to communicate that truth to the public, to run a big campaign to say, look, this is how serious things are. This is what the science is telling us. Now, if that came from the government, if they gave into that first demand, that in itself would be a game changer. Mm. I think uh, one positive thing we've seen in the last maybe 12 to 18 months is the financial sector, which is obviously, you know, based on greed, thinks that uh, investing in fossil fuel is a dead end and a waste of time. And what I find extraordinary is how the federal government is willing to use taxpayers' money to continue to support and expand the fossil fuel industry for the sake of a few jobs. Just extraordinary, isn't it? Oh, well, they're, they're literally flogging a dead horse in economic terms. Mm. Uh, I, I think I think where we can get some encouragement, and it's only a little bit of encouragement, but we've got the EU have got a massive stimulus package, green stimulus package for clean energy, We've got China who have committed to, you know, peak emissions before 2030 and uh, net zero by 2060, which is nowhere near soon enough, but it's enough to affect the market given their size. And then if Biden wins, he's got a very ambitious uh, climate agenda as well. Now, if those the world's three biggest economies, plus Japan and their recent announcements, if they do what they say they're going to do, then Australia becomes a global pariah and the heat, the heat will seriously be on our government. Um, so I think we can we can be encouraged by that. It's nowhere near enough, but but it's it's at least a start, and and at least the momentum will be swung in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So what are the type of sacrifices that Australians are looking at in order to address the climate emergency? Well. I think the big problem is is because we've left it so late, we know that it's not just as simple as, as switching to renewable energy. That's 
you know, that's really important, but that's not mm. going to be enough in itself. Um, and I emphasise climate and ecological emergency because it's not just the climate. You know, on our current trajectory, we're looking at, you know, the world's fish stocks are going to collapse by 2050. The wildlife will disappear by 2050. The world's wildlife, um, you know, insect populations are in steady decline and they'll collapse by about 2050 as well. So it's not just climate. It's the whole natural world is unravelling before our very eyes and... and and this is the toxic system. This is the system that we have. The success of this system is predicated on this absurd notion of infinite growth. And you cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. So what we're talking about here is we need radical... Brad, and Brad, Brad, you're yes. kidding me. Haven't we got the magic pudding planet? We can always <laughs> have infinite growth. <laughs> remember the old magic pudding, you know? Magic pudding. I remember yeah. that very clearly in Parliament. They think it's a magic pudding. They think it's a magic. Well, the whole political class, the mainstream political class, all think it's a magic pudding, and we know it's not. It's just a physical impossibility. So all these things need to be addressed. Um, I've just recently read Noam Chomsky's um, Internationalism or Extinction, and like he says, he says the task before us is daunting because we need a radical overhaul of everything. Right. So what changes... I know you've joined Extinction Rebellion and obviously you're involved in direct action, but what have you made any personal changes as far as the way you live is concerned? Yeah, I've, uh, I've been a vegetarian for over 10 years and, and I converted to veganism last year, um, mm -hmm. except for honey, to be honest. I, I've got to be careful where I say that because... Um, a lot of vegans would get upset if I call myself a vegan and I'm still eating honey. So, I'm, look, I'm 99% vegan, but I'm... Um, so I'm on a plant-based diet that dramatically reduces my ecological footprint. Um, that, as well as my activism, um, that's that's as much as I can do at the moment. You know, I, I shop at the op shop when I can if I need some new pants for work, um, mm. you know, new pair of jeans. Um, I, yeah, I, look, I try to... I try to be as eco-friendly as I can be, um, but the reality is, and this is what Extinction Rebellion talks about, you know, that's not enough. If we stay on this trajectory and everyone's, you know, got their keep cups, we're all going to die with our keep cups in our hands, the way things are going. If we don't get that yeah, but radical... You, you, you and I won't die. We're old people. It'll be our kids that'll die. Well, it's the next 10 years that are crucial, Joe. I know, I understand that, but uh, but you and I, you know, we've we've destroyed the planet. Well, I've destroyed the planet. I'm older than you, and uh, you know, and, you, and you're trying to do something about it. But um, you're quite right. There, there is a lag time. And you're quite right. But do you have do you have faith in the current institutions, or do you think we need a change in the political structure in this country, Brad? I think I think the system, well, Extinction Rebellion and myself, this is why I joined Extinction Rebellion, we, we believe the system is broken and not fit for purpose. We, we, we don't believe the current system is capable of bringing about the change that we need. And that, that's where our second and third demands kick in because the second demand is act as if the truth is real, commit to net zero emissions by 2025 and to reduce the rate of extinction as soon as is humanly possible. But the third key demand is the really important one and that's it's a technocratic 
and democratic solution, and that's the citizens' assemblies. So to get around the political class, and we know the political class, uh, they're beholden to special interests. They're never going to do what needs to be done because, you know, they'll upset their political masters. So the, we believe the best hope we've got is, is citizens' assemblies. And we believe... We basically put faith in, in, in the common person because we believe if the common person sits down and they're presented the facts from the relevant experts, this is how bad things are, this is what we can do about it. Um, the history of citizens' assemblies tells us most people will make a very rational decision when they're presented with the facts. And we've seen that around the world. We've, we've seen that citizens' assemblies were used in Iceland with the banking crisis, and they arguably got one of the best outcomes in the world. They were used in Ireland with a toxic abortion debate. They got a good outcome there. Uh, they used in uh, Texas, of all places, with, with the energy debate, and Texas is now, you know, the home of oil is now a renewable powerhouse. So we know citizens' assemblies work. We know they're... There are more pure form of democracy because you're randomly selecting members of the public. You try to get all demographics represented. And then those people sit down with those relevant experts and they make decisions and those decisions then have to be binding on the political class. So we believe that's the best possible hope. We've well, that, that's the key, isn't it? That's the key. I mean, the Victorian state government has experimented with, uh, you know, modified citizens' assemblies, I've noticed. But... Uh, it's a little bit like the Charter of Rights. They don't actually have to take any notice. It's like a Royal Commission. You know, you don't actually have to take any notice of what the findings the Royal Commission makes. Uh, so uh, what would force a government to actually take any recommendation made by a citizen assembly seriously? Well, it would have to be binding to be effective. Um, right. And like you said, that's okay. the key point. That's the key mm. point. You know, I mean, we, we have so basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, you're looking at two things: you're looking at direct action, you're looking at direct democracy as a mechanism by which to tackle the uh, the uh, climate emergency we all face, as well as some personal changes and renewable energy. So you're looking at institutional change, personal change, renewable energy. You know, it's like um, throwing everything you got at the problem. Well, do our theory, our theory of change is mass mobilisation with civil disobedience and direct action. Now, to be honest, we're still very much in the outreach stage. We don't have the numbers we need. But if, if we do get those numbers and we can force governments around the world to accept those three key demands and we get to that third, that crucial third key demand, um, then it becomes that democratic, technocratic solution because the technocrats are, are going to be informing the, the members of the Citizens' Assembly about what is the best way out of this. And they, they would deal with the most pressing issues first. They would deal with the low-hanging fruit, which would be, you know, the energy transition. But then they would have to look at systemic change too, because as we previously discussed, you cannot have infinite economic growth on a finite planet. The current system is clearly unsustainable. And one day I think we'll look back and we'll say that was an incredibly indulgent period of history. I'm sure we'll say that. Now, let's get back to climate extinction. How do people get involved? Uh, I would encourage anyone who wants to get involved uh, to get online to go to osrebellion.earth and to sign up for the newsletter for starters. Then you can, lo you can locate your local group. We operate, we are non-hierarchical, we're decentralised and we operate through local groups and affinity groups. So people can sign up, get the newsletter, get a taste for things 
join their local group, um, join an affinity group, whatever suits them best. We have a whole series of training programs, non-violent direct action training programs. Um, people don't have to be arrestable to join Extinction Rebellion. There's a bit of a misconception there. We've got a lot of support roles for people who, who, who for a variety of reasons, don't want to be arrested. Um, it's about a 20 to 1 ratio, actually. So, you know, people can join, they can get involved in our media teams, our regen teams, our outreach teams. Um, obviously, the arrestable positions, civil disobedience is a very important part of what we do. It's what differentiates us from a lot of other groups, and it's why we've been as effective as we have been. So, um, but yeah, I'd encourage people to sign up, get the newsletters, get a feel for XR, because this is ultimately a numbers game, and if we don't get the numbers we need, we just don't succeed. And if we don't succeed, then we're looking at the collapse of human civilization as we know it. Mm. So you think it's that serious? Oh, look, that's what the science is telling. That's not what I think. That's what the science is telling. No, no, no. no. It's, what, it's what you think, because the scientists obviously have knowledge, which they impart, but it's what people think about that knowledge. Obviously, some people say it's a lot of garbage, but an increasing number of you said have as you have said, think it's a, it's the number one issue that we all face. You're quite right. Have you got any hope for the future? How, how many kids have you got, Brad? I've just got the one. I've got a 20-year-old son. All right. Have you got um, any, has, he, I assume he hasn't got any kids yet, has he? No, not yet. Not yet. Right. So have you got any hope? Yeah. you got hope for the future? Look, if I didn't have hope, I wouldn't be an active member of Extinction Rebellion, Joe. Um Exactly. I don't think it's too late. I don't think it's too late. I think we can turn the ship around, but it's going to take a, a massive effort, a massive collective effort and a huge awakening of the human race. Um, but we know for certain that the climate and the ecology is just going to continue to unravel. Um, and as it does, people are going to be looking for solutions and they're going to be looking for something to do about that. And the hope is that, that they will come to groups like Extinction Rebellion or the Sunrise Movement in the US or... Whatever it may be, they'll roll up their sleeves and get involved and, and create that change that we need. Yeah, well, that's the key, isn't it? The key is to get involved. The key is to listen and get involved and do something. Because as you said, we could talk here for the next 500 years and unless uh, other people get involved, nothing's ever going to change, obviously. So, um, you know, I think I think uh, very important lessons. Non-hierarchical, direct democracy, um, you know... Uh, Greed, you know, get rid of greed, personal change. I think uh, obviously you're asking a lot. Now, Brad, look, I wish you all the best for the future and hopefully sooner or later you'll stop driving concrete trucks and become a full-time activist. So maybe you'll be able to go on a pension one day. <laughs> that's that's the dream, Joe. That's the dream. If anyone wants to bankroll that, please get in touch because um, uh, yeah, I'd much <laughs> rather be put, putting my energy towards my activism, but... But I've got to pay the bills, so you've got you've to do what you've got to You've got to pay you've the bills. You've hit the nail on the head. Brad, look, I'd like to congratulate you uh, for your for your life and your activism. I'd like to congratulate you for trying, for caring. And as you said, you put it, you, you, you summed it up beautifully. You said, if I didn't have any hope, I wouldn't be involved. I wouldn't care. And uh, it's great to see you willing to put your body on the line to uh, address the, the uh, impending climate emergency. So, all the best for the future. Look after yourself. All the best to your fellow members of uh, uh, Rebellion Extinction and hopefully uh, 
this uh, program will encourage a few other people to join. Now, remember that the program is podcast and will be podcast the next two or three days and you'll be able to access that podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Thank you very much, Brad, and look after yourself. Thank you very much, Joan. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.